If you have your Bible this morning, if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 1. <clears throat> While you're turning, I want to express appreciation to this church for the ministry that you have had to our family uh, through Jim Dady. He was a dear friend. We went to many baseball games together, but also to my wife's parents, Elizabeth and Harrison Nesbitt. They were a member here for a number of years and you all cared for them. Harrison went to be the Lord with the Lord a few years ago and Elizabeth went to Powhatan to Evergreen and uh, continues to be a, a faithful participant there. She's with us this morning. She's 98 and uh, she never misses a Sunday. All right, if you have the word of God, follow along here, Romans chapter one. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Lord, we pray here as we open your word that you would refresh us. It's a very familiar passage to many of us. But Lord, open our eyes, reinvigorate us, give us a vision of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray that you would use this hour in Christ's name. Amen. I don't think I have to tell you that this country is growing more and more hostile to Christianity. A hundred years ago, the world shamed the church for believing in an inerrant Bible, miracles, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth. The mainline churches decided that they have to be relevant. And so they embraced the liberalism that was being taught. And we see today how they've been relegated to the margins of society and many face extension. I read a recent article that talked about the Episcopal Church and how it is on a trajectory to be out of existence in not too many years. Today, the world is shaming us, not necessarily with the same issues, but with it's a similar type shame. We didn't embrace classic liberalism, but they're shaming us for not believing in their sexual ethic, their use of pronouns, their views of history, our whiteness, our maleness, our European thinking, our lack of inclusion, our not embracing feminism, the list could go on and on and on. And we face the question do, that the mainline churches faced 100 years ago. And that question is, will we be relevant according to their definition? After all, don't you want to win the world? And the way to win the world is to be relevant to where the world is. The answer is yes, we do. We want to win the world. But the question really is, what method will we use to win the world? Will we embrace a marketing strategy as the church did 100 years ago? You see, they made a decision based on human wisdom about what they needed to do to get the world to like them. Their decision was devastating. We face the same decision and our choice could be devastating as well. This morning, I want to look at Romans 1, 16 and 17 and talk with you about the Apostle Paul's decision in his day. 
we'll see that he's facing a world that looks a lot like our world, and he's facing a decision about how to reach that world. You see, every generation has to make this decision. For Paul, there were two controlling factors, and they come out of this text. The first is the power of God, and the second is the righteousness of God. If you'll notice verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I want to stop there and talk about shame for a little bit. Shame is, why is shame important for us? Well, shame is kind of the underbelly of the marketing and advertising. It's what you do. You avoid shame in order to be relevant. In advertising, we use beautiful women and handsome men on commercials. Why? Because the underside of that message is if you buy this car or buy this whatever, people will not see you as shameful. If you don't buy it, you may be considered shameful. You feel proud, not shameful, around your friends and your neighbors. You're relevant. Paul said he's not ashamed. Think with me just a little bit about all the reasons that Paul could be ashamed in his day of the gospel because they are many and they are numerous. Paul is writing this letter to Rome. Rome, he's just this little Jewish guy in Corinth. He's writing to Rome. Rome is the political capital of the world. Rome is the military capital of the world. Rome is the religious capital of the world. The intimidation that political, military, religious had to be tremendous. Paul says he's not ashamed. Think about the failure in Paul's life. Paul was sent from Tarsus, probably by his parents, to Jerusalem. He was a precocious young man, brilliant. He was sent to Jerusalem to study the law, to study under the rabbis, the best in the world. It was the Harvard and Yale of religious studies of his day. He went there, and he was a brilliant student. He went to the top of the class. He could have been by this time in his life the rabbi in Jerusalem. Think what those men are saying about Paul right now. He was so brilliant. He had so much promise. You know, he gets chased around the world. He's in jails. He's in shipwrecks. He's teaching this little cult group. What a waste. What a waste of a brilliant mind. He's a failure. Paul says he's not ashamed. Think about Paul's opposition from the Judaizers. They follow him around. Think about that. They follow him around wherever he goes, and they're there to harass him. They're there to encourage the people he's speaking to not to listen to him. Paul says he's not ashamed. Think about the weaknesses in his churches. Corinth. Think about the church at Corinth. Think about Galatia. Think about Philippi, where there's envy and strife in his churches. Paul's not ashamed. Think of opposition from outside the churches and possibly inside the churches from men who are super apostles. They are the health and wealth gospel preachers of the day. They walk on water. They conquer disease. They have all their needs met. And here's Paul living a life of difficulty and suffering, and poverty. He's not ashamed, though. 
His ministry, if you read 2 Corinthians 6 and 11, you find that his ministry is characterized by imprisonments, beatings, shipwrecks, and he goes on with a long, long list of his own personal experience. Paul is even criticized personally. In 2 Corinthians 10, he references the fact that his letters, they read his letters and they say, wow, Paul, you're a fabulous writer, but when you come, you're not that good of a speaker. You know, your bodily presence is weak and your speech is contemptible. So what did this guy have going for him? He says he's not ashamed. What is it that drives his engine? What is, that fuel, what is it that fuels his life? What is it that makes him get up in the morning and go against a world in which there are so few Christians? You know, the world tries to shame you. The world will call you a bigot. They will call you a racist. They'll call you a Nazi, and there's a whole list of other adjectives that they will call you. Shame causes many in the church and in politics to be quiet. But notice what Paul says, I am not ashamed. It is a bold, it is an emphatic, it is right at the start of this letter to Rome. And you know, we have the privilege of 2,000 years away from this man who seemed to be in many standards such a failure. And yet apart from the Lord Jesus, there may not be any man in the world in the last 2,000 years who impacted the world more than Paul. So what is it that he's not ashamed of? He's not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is the word of God about Jesus Christ. It is Christ's gospel, the anointed king who God has raised from the dead and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father and reigns and rules the nations of the world. The gospel in its most basic meaning is good news. Paul says, I have good news for this world. They have every reason not to like me and to shame me, but I have a message I have a message for them that they need to hear. Listen to what he says as he defines the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. What does Paul give us? He gives us a series of propositions a series of assertions about history. He's talking about something that was real. It happened in history. J. Gresham Machen, the great Christian leader of 100 years ago in his book, Christianity and Liberalism. If you've never read it, I would encourage you to get it because it's as if he wrote it today. He says in that book, Christ died. That's history. Christ died for our sins. That's doctrine. 
And that's what Paul is doing. He's preaching the doctrine of Jesus Christ, of who he is, and it's good news. It's good news to the world. Today, we, have, we see attacks on history. We want to obliterate history. We want to forget history. And I, I believe in, at the most basic level, it is an attempt to do away with the reality of the gospel, the historicity of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But now we have to ask a question. Why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? What is it that despite all these distractions, he has got a focus, he has zeroed in on something that he will not let go of? It doesn't matter who doesn't like him. It doesn't matter what difficulties he faces. He has a focus. And what is it? He tells us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The Greek word there is dunamis. We get our English word dynamite from it, but you would be wrong to read dynamite back into this power. It's more like a, 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 the engine in your car. There are thousands of explosions in your car every minute that you drive it, but those, those explosions are transferred out of the engine to the transmission, to the powertrain, to the wheels. There is a focus, there is a purpose, there is an ability in that engine. There is power that is ability to move that car to where you wanna go. And that's the idea that Paul is, is acting upon and is driven by. Think about what Paul said about his ministry and life. He's not operating on emotion. He's not operating on how he feels. He's not operating on how people feel about him. He's operating on truth, historical truth, that is the power of God to save. What is it inherent in the gospel that makes Paul not ashamed? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. You might think of salvation if you've seen a picture of a flood, the Mississippi River overflows its banks every few years and it goes to places it's never been before and there's a house, it's surrounded by water and there's a person on the roof. They're about to be washed away in the flood. But a helicopter comes and a helicopter lowers a rope, lowers a basket and that person gets in that basket and they're pulled to safety. They're saved. That helicopter has ability. It has the ability to save that person in this house. And Paul is saying that the gospel has ability. It has the ability to save people. Now you might say this morning, well, I could use that gospel because I'm my own worst enemy. You know, I've got a secret life. I, I live, my wife doesn't know about it. My parents don't know about it. I have a secret life and I need help with myself. And we say this to the men in the jail because they're struggling. 90% of men in jail are there because of drugs in one way or another. They have tremendous battles with drugs. They have tremendous battles with society and just their life in general. And it's not hard for them to see, I need help. 
And Paul is concerned about that, but that's not the bottom line for him. You might even say, well, I need to be saved from my friends. I have a group of friends and we get together and we go do things that I know are not right. And I do things that are destroying me. My friends are teaching me to do drugs. You know, last year, 90,000 people died from drug overdoses. 90,000. And we see with the men so often when they get out, what they do, they'll go to their friends. They move back to their old neighborhood. They go back with their old friends. And immediately or quickly thereafter, they fall back into their old ways. You know, that might be you today. You might be saying, well, I need salvation from my friends. That could be true. But that's not what Paul is concerned about. You might even say this morning, well, I need salvation from the devil. I feel spiritual forces of wickedness that I see in movies and various things. The devil is very present in so much of culture, in the media of culture, and that has a power over me. And I need to be saved from the devil and those spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That could also be true. But that's not what drives Paul. That's not what makes him go. That's not what fuels his engine. Notice verse 18 of Romans 1. What is it? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You see, Paul is driven. He doesn't care what people think about him. He doesn't care how often he gets shipwrecked. He is going to people and talk to them about God and about the wrath of God. Paul lives in a world that is full of the wrath of God. Notice verse 24, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Follow along carefully as I read 28 to 32. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what they ought not to do. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they knew God, they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice this thing deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice him. People often say, well, I could believe in God if I could see him. Where is God? Paul is saying to the church in Rome, look around you, friends. This this passage in Romans 1 not only describes Rome in Paul's day, this is America today. This is our world today. Where is God? He's there in his wrath. He's pouring his wrath out upon us as a people and as a nation. So you may say, well, are you telling us that we need to just fold it up and form a Christian conclave and just me and my friends and let's stay away? No, Paul's not writing this to discourage them. He's writing this to help them understand, to diagnose the world that they live in, to understand the world they live in. 
And when they understand it, then they begin to see what is it that can change that world. It's the power of God in the gospel that can save men from the wrath of God. Paul describes the world in order that they might take up the gospel and go forward with it. He wants you, he wants me, that we would take up that gospel and go into our world. But he says something else that's disturbing. Notice chapter 2, verse 1. O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge. You who judge practice the very same things. The argument of chapter 2, Paul is talking to church people. He's talking to those who've grown up in the Jewish tradition, who've grown up in the synagogues. And he's saying, look at your own life. Does your life look like the pagan in Romans 1? Well, no, I've got it kind of covered over. I go to church regularly. I give money to the church. I participate in this. I do that. Paul is saying, drill down deep. Are you the one that's hiding your pornography from your wife? Are you the one hiding drugs from your parents? Oh, you're in the youth group. But where is the reality of your life? Paul is saying, and his argument is, that you need Christ. You need to re-embrace and understand the gospel. Now quickly, what is it about the gospel that makes Paul want to take it to the world? It's our second point. Because in the gospel, what does it reveal? It reveals God. It reveals the righteous God. In chapter 3, verse 21, he says, Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, Jew or Greek. It's whoever, all men. He calls all men to come through this gospel to understand the righteousness of God. You know, we often tell the people that we work with, there are only two religions in the world. There's all the religions on one hand and there's one religion on the other. All the religions of the world are some form of how you can be a better person, how you can have more peace, how you can have more happiness, how you can ascend the, the ladder to God. The, God the, righteous, the gospel is that the righteous God came down. Christ lived the perfect life. He died and paid the penalty for our sins, that he might be our savior, that he might take us to heaven to be with him. That's the gospel. And how do you get connected to the gospel? It's from faith to faith, he says. It's very simple. Do you believe it? Now the devils, they know the gospel. They know the facts. They assent to those facts but they don't trust their soul. They don't trust their soul to those facts, to that God, to that righteous God. And that's what God calls us this morning to in the gospel. And that's what he calls us to take to our friends and neighbors. The gospel is not inside you. We tell our people, and I tell you, if you want hope, don't look inside. The gospel is not about what's inside of you. If you look inside, you're going to find sin. 
You're going to find nothing to have hope. The gospel is outside of you. It's a message of Christ who is outside of us, who died on the cross, who gives us his righteousness. The gospel is not what people think of you. The gospel is not how successful you are. The gospel is not how successful this church is. The gospel is not in homeschooling your children, though that may be a very good thing to do. The gospel is not in a great marriage. The gospel is in Jesus Christ and the Father. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus tells a story about a wealthy man who decided to throw a great party and he invited all his friends. And of course, his friends were like him. They were wealthy and had a lot going on. And when the day for the party came, the friends all made excuses. I bought a field. I've got a wedding to go to. I've got this. I've got that. So the man had made all the preparations. So he said to his servants, he said, I want you to go out and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. So they went out and they brought them all in. And they said, sir, we've still got room. He said, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now that's the kind of ministry the apostle Paul had. He didn't go to the mighty and the powerful. The gospel is not found there. The gospel is found with the weak and the hungry and the broken. That's one of the things we see in our ministry is that we don't have to spend a lot of time convincing people that they need an answer, that they need salvation. They know, they know their life is a mess and they're hungry for good news. And in that good news is the power of God to save. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you that it is the, your ability to change a man's life, to change a woman's life, to take us out of the mire and the muck of our culture and to grow us in salvation, to grow us in holiness and righteousness, Lord. Only you can do that by a new birth. We give you thanks. We give you praise. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.